Hey everyone, this is Josh, host of the Urban Ballard Podcast. Today's guest is Marine veteran Jennifer Skinner. Jennifer grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. She was inspired to join the Marine Corps after her older brother became a Marine. Jennifer enlisted on an open contract and was assigned to be a military cook. While in the Marine Corps, she became a marksmanship coach and earned her black belt in the Marine Corps martial arts program. In this episode, Jennifer talks about double food rations in boot camp, what she endured to earn her black belt, island hopping while overseas, and the loss of her fellow comrades to suicide. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Valor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Valor TV, or you can email me at josh at urbanvalor.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Jennifer Skinner. I was in the United States Marine Corps from 2016 to 2020, and I got out as a sergeant. So I was born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up in like a rural area outside of the city. So I kind of got a taste of both the city and the country life, which was really fun. Um, you know, growing up, really the only rule that my parents had for me was make sure you come home when the streetlights come on. So growing up, I felt like I was kind of a tomboy. Like a lot of the time when I was going out, I was hanging out with like my brother and his friends and we would go riding around in dune buggies, if you guys are familiar with that. <laughs> and we would just be so crazy. Like we would get muddy and by the time we'd come home, like my mom would just take a hose to us. <laughs> like she wouldn't let us come inside the house dirty, but we were just being little wild children. Like I feel like when you grow up in the South, it's just that typical Southern experience that you get. And we would go, I've gone cow tipping before on my friend's ranch. Sometimes we would go into the city too, you know, but there wasn't much to do where I grew up. Really, it was just like going to the mall was about the most exciting thing that you could do. And uh, I grew up maybe about 10 minutes away from Charlotte Motor Speedway. So, you know, they always had like NASCAR and stuff going on. So it was just a lot of hillbillies and nights out at Waffle House and I guess the most exciting thing was like Friday night lights and in high school, you know, and like going to the football games and stuff. But it was really just a slow, slow upbringing, definitely. I got in some trouble when I was 17. I I was hanging out with a really bad crowd and um, I, I didn't necessarily have any direction at that time. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I mean, I had gotten accepted into a college, but really... I was just messing up. I uh, I got involved with, you know, I guess like the stoner <laughs> group of kids. And um, I ended up getting in trouble or having a run-in with the police when I was 17, which was not good. And that actually did change a lot. Like, it made me realize, what what am I really doing in my life? And I, you know, I didn't really want to study anything in specific, and I was just thinking about it. Like, what... Where am I going to go now, now that I'm 17 and I already got something on my record <laughs> at that point? Um, I had gotten pulled over uh, with my best friend, and um, we had marijuana on us. And in North Carolina, that is not legal. So the cops hemmed us up real quick. And uh, when my mama had came to pick us up, because, you know, you're not allowed to drive or whatever, um, she she really had her way with me in front of the police officers. Like, she embarrassed me so bad. I had just gotten a piercing in, in like, my cartilage. 
And my mama came, she came, she wound up her entire hand and came right across my face. And I was like bleeding in front of the police and everything. I decided to join the military, specifically the Marine Corps, because of my brother. So I have an older brother who he joined the Marines and I went to his graduation probably June of 2016. So right after I graduated. And this is still in between that time when I really didn't know if I wanted to join college or go to college or not. My brother's always been my biggest inspiration. He's always been a hero in my eyes. Like ever since we were younger, I feel like I've just been my brother's shadow. And uh, like if he started drawing, I'm going to start drawing. If he picked up skateboarding, I'm skateboarding. So when he joined the Marines, it, it like almost felt right for me to join the Marines too. So um in August, I sat down with a recruiter, talked to him, told him, I don't care what the job is. I just, I want to be like my big brother. Just put me in as, as fast as you can. And, and they did. And and I remember being in boot camp, uh, riding back home to my brother and just telling him, like, what did you sign me up for? <laughs> like, as if I didn't want to emulate him and, and you know, he, just be like my older brother. And even to this day, he's still the greatest Marine in my eyes. The day I left to boot camp, I feel like those emotions that I had, they were so overwhelming because I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I was only in the debt for three weeks. It didn't give me much time to prepare at all. And being from Charlotte, all we had to do was drive down in a bus from Charlotte to Paris Island. So it was just get on the bus and then within four hours, you're there. And then you know how they shove your head down in the seat? <laughs> It was, it was really nerve-wracking, and I remember looking over at the guy who was from my same recruiter station, and he was so nervous. He was, like, almost in tears, and I was like, why would you feel that nervous? Like, I didn't know what to expect going in, and then once they got on the bus and they started yelling and told you to get off, I remember I was the first one to run off the bus and get on those yellow footprints, and I just stared straight ahead and just said, well, you're here now, and there's, there's, no, there's no quitting now. So I always kept that same mindset, you know, I just can't give up no matter what. And um, there were there were some really tough nights there mentally for me, I think. Physically, it wasn't necessarily an issue, but mentally just making that transition from civilian to Marine was so miraculous. And I love talking about boot camp. I, I, I don't care if that makes me a motivator or a boot. I love talking about it. But um, mainly I was a uh, underweight when I went into boot camp. So I had to get a weight waiver just to go to boot camp to begin with. And they put me on double rations. And in double rations, you just have to eat twice as much as the amount of normal recruits. Uh, so you can get out and be at least at the weight minimum uh, once you hit the fleet. And that was really hard. <laughs> like when you would run into the chow hall, you'd have these um, skivvy shirts that would you know, let them know, let the chow hall workers know that you were underweight and they'd have like white stripes across them. And I remember how hungry I was running into the chow hall every single day. And I would just rip my shirt open and just be like, hey, like I'm here, pound it on, give me like double mashed potatoes, double chicken, all of it, double. They give me two Gatorades and it was great. And I would, you know, run down to my seat and um, the way that we filed into the chow hall, I was always the first squad to go run in. And so that means I got maybe a couple extra minutes than everyone else, which was really great for me. I just remember sitting down and just eating to my heart's content. But it sucked because the drill instructors would come by and they would see me uh, obviously eating twice as much as the other recruits. 
and they'd smack my hands and stuff. I used to have one drill instructor, and she would come up to me, and she'd be like, a skinner with your fat fucking fingers, and she'd pop them really hard while I was eating, and, like, the food would fall out of my hand, but I didn't care because I was, you know, going right back to it. And then by the time we'd run out of the chow hall, I'd be so full. My stomach would be huge. Like, I would literally look pregnant. And then they'd have you running around, and I'd end up throwing it up, and then they'd end up getting written up for making the underweight recruit throw up. And it was just a hot mess. Like, the way that I used to eat in boot camp was insane. <laughs> My grandmother would send me these protein bars, because if you're underweight, they, they'd write you a waiver to send you protein bars if you needed them. And so every night, I'd stand up on the quarter deck in the squad bay, and the drill instructors would make me face everybody and just eat in front of them to kind of make them feel like shit. But they'd only give me a minute to eat it. So I literally just swallow. I, I didn't even have time to fully chew the protein bar. But I was so hungry that I would do it every time. But there was one time where our drill instructor stepped off the quarter deck for a split second. And when she did that, okay, this is gross. And, and I don't mind telling you. But <laughs> I took a piece of it and I put it down in my skivvy shorts and I saved it. And later that night when the lights were out and the drill instructors were up, uh, my best friend came to my rack <laughs> and I pulled this crusty, dusty little piece of protein bar out and we just shared it on the rack. It was so gross. Like, but you know how hard you just fiend for that good food in there. So that was just, that was like, I don't know, like gold, like in, in the Marines. I would be scuzzing the deck one day during morning cleanup and then you'd find like that corner piece of the peanut butter packet and all hell would break loose. Like, I, I remember one time someone did that near my rack, and I was like, I knew who it was, too. It was this fat recruit, and she was so greedy, and she could never seem to put, or never seem to not steal the peanut butter packet. So I, I literally hid it inside of her, her go-fasters, her shoes. I don't know why I'm going back to these words, but I hid it inside of her shoes, and they ended up finding it later and blamed it on her, and I didn't say anything. <laughs> But I didn't want to be the one who got caught with the peanut butter because it wasn't me. So one of the most embarrassing moments in my boot camp experience was uh, the day that I got IT'd in front of the entire platoon. So we were doing morning scuzz and we we're cleaning up the deck. And I probably had one of the worst bearing out of the entire platoon. Like I would just like crack up over the little things, which is not good, you know, and we were cleaning up, and I was overhearing one of my drill instructors yelling at the tallest recruit in the platoon. And she was really tall. She was like 6'4". And so she would tell her, she was like, oh, her, her last name was Campbell. She said, oh, Campbell, you're as tall as a giraffe, right? I bet you you could touch, like, the top of the squad bay right now, right? And I, I cracked a smile. But this was probably one of the worst times I could have done that because the other drill instructor was talking about her time in combat. And when she turned and saw that I was chuckling about it, she thought... She related me laughing at her experience. So immediately she hems me up. She grabs me from my blouse and carries me up into the, the squab bay and drops me down and starts making me, uh, you know, do high knees in place, um, sit in a plank, do push-ups. And 20 minutes goes by and I'm still up there and I'm sweating my ass off. And, and she's telling me like, if you hate the Marine Corps so much, just take off your blouse and stomp on it. Right. And I like refuse to do that. Because she really thought that I was talking down on the Marines when in reality I was just laughing in connection to another recruit getting fucked up. And um, this caused like an uproar through my entire platoon. So my 
guide actually came and ran up and she got down beside me and started doing planks beside me. And then that caused every other girl to come up there. And our drill instructor got so mad. She was like, you know what? Everyone else, get back online right now, right? Because everyone came up to support me in that moment because they didn't want um, to leave me be, I guess. And they knew that I wasn't trying to laugh at someone else's hardships. And so we all got back online and she told us to take off our blouses and we took them off and we we're holding them out for like 10 minutes straight. But um, we refused to like take them off and stomp on them. And so I feel like Although I really embarrassed myself that day, I feel like the platoon learned so much about being there for one another and that it's not just about this institution, you know, it's it's about the brotherhood and the sisterhood that you you build throughout it. And I, or I'm really happy that n nobody actually sat there and like stomped on it. <laughs> like, I feel like if someone did that, then we'd be able to weed out, okay, like this person clearly doesn't want to be a Marine. So when I enlisted, I didn't enlist under an open contract, but I enlisted to where they could kind of choose where they wanted to put me or wherever they needed me. So it was in between supply, administration, and food service. And by the end of boot camp, the drill instructor who ended up giving me my EGA, she came up to me and said, hey, you're going to be a cook. So get ready to go to Fort Lee. And that's in Richmond, Virginia. And that was a whole experience on its own. But the schoolhouse was maybe about two and a half months long, and you got a lot of garrison experience, learning how to cook, you know, just being stationed. And then we also got some field experience, so if you're deployed, what, that, what that's like. And really, it's just a bunch of, like, dehydrated eggs that you got to figure out how to make omelets out of. Um, so that experience was humbling, to say the least. Lots of working parties, um, lots of time to wait to pick up class, I think I was in the schoolhouse for about six months. Um, but being that it was so close to home, uh, my family got to come up. And when I got promoted to private first class, I had my brother come up because he's also a Marine. So I had him pin me, which was really, really great. So I still had a good experience. Following the schoolhouse, I got selected to go to Iwakuni, Japan, which is a part of mainland Japan. And I was really excited to go there because I've heard really good things. Like, it's the bread and butter of the Marine Corps. It's not like Okinawa. You don't experience hazing, depending on your job and your command, of course. But when I got welcomed in there, there was no hazing whatsoever. Like, I was welcomed by my mentors, um, Corporal Roos and Sergeant Bushy at the time. Now, I believe she's a gunnery sergeant. But having a strong female leader was really, really paramount in my experience. But my Corporal Roos, he was also great. Like I started in this warehouse slash office kind of position. And the first thing he did was he sat me down and he said, what we're going to do is we're going to get the job done as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So that time that we have left over, you can spend signing up for college classes, uh, expanding your McMat belts. So going and doing the martial arts program. Um, getting secondary MOSs, going on meritorious boards, whatever the case may be. And we did. Like, we would go to work, and we would finish maybe by, like, 14.30. And then for the rest of the day, he'd say, hey, let's go to the gym. Let's go work out. Or, hey, why don't you uh, finish some MCIs online? And then once you're done with that, we'll put you on a meritorious board. So within a month of hitting the fleet, I was already promoted meritoriously to Lance Corporal because I had won somehow, miraculously. Like, I, I guess I had a high enough... PFT, CFT comparative to the other PFCs there. 
within a month after that, I had already completed uh, my gray belt course and my green belt course. And before I even became a corporal and before they changed the order, I was a black belt. And you best believe me walking around with my little Lance Corporal chevrons, anytime I got a chance to, I'd, you know, flip up my belt just so everyone could see that I, I, I meant business. And, um, having him there to teach me how to get things done really quickly, I don't think it was skating, how most people would say it's skating, because we didn't just disappear afterwards. It was like we were there to do what we had to do and then advance ourselves as much as possible. And he was in college and traveling a bunch of places and having that immediately, like that mentality kind of burned into you as a young Marine, I feel like it made all the difference for me. I'll never forget the words of Sergeant Bushy. She told me, nobody is going to care about your career more than you. So you've got to work hard and accomplish your dreams. And I really took that seriously. Before I was even a corporal, I had gone to combat marksmanship coach course in Okinawa and I have become a coach. And now I'm this food service Marine with a double expert on rifle and pistol badges. Like who sees that, you know, going into a ball like that? I, I was extremely proud, super motivated. And I have an experience that I feel like so many people don't get. And I feel, I feel really heavy for them because I feel like this is what the Marine Corps wants for its Marines, you know? One of my favorite parts about being a coach was being able to mag dump all the rounds at the end of the qual day. That was so much fun. Like we would just take all the safety violators and all the unks, we'd take all their weapons and then we'd just fill up tons of magazines and we'd just speed reload, we'd throw it on burst and we'd just go down range. All the coaches would just line up and it was beautiful. It was all the gunpowder, you know, filling the air and everything, and us just with our pith covers being crazy. It was a glorious time. And then by the time we were done mag dumping hundreds of rounds through their weapons, we'd just hand them off and say, hey, all right, you can go to the armory now. <laughs> Thanks for failing, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> that was like so, so cool for oh. me. I have caught some heat from some guys that didn't want to take the instruction from me. But most of the time, the people that didn't want the instruction tended to shoot worse. And they never got that shiny expert that they were kind of looking for. So I remember one time I was on an indoor pistol range and I was coaching a few different guys. One was a staff sergeant. One was chief warrant officer. And the chief warrant officer wanted nothing to do with me at all. And he was constantly making errors. He couldn't seem to get his breath down. He was super anxious. And even like right before the draw, you would just see him completely shaking. And, and I would try to take him away from it and say, hey, like, if you're not ready to, you know, do live fire, we can go off to the side and do some dry fire because I feel like that would really help you. I feel like grass week and dry fire is the best chance you have at shooting better. But he didn't want anything to do with it. And usually those are the guys that would end up getting marksmen or, or worse, unking. And like I said, there was a staff sergeant beside him. And he took everything that I said to heart. He took all the words that I had to say, all the advice that I had to give, which was a lot because I genuinely really cared about my shooters. And I would stay after just to take care of everybody. And even now, I'm also a range safety officer, so I carry on that same level of care for everyone. But he ended up shooting expert. 
And he was the first person ever in my first range that I ever had to take off his rank and give me his rank as range candy. And I still have it stapled into my pith cover. I love remembering that. But the people that didn't take instruction, I just feel bad for him because a lot of the time when your coach is reaching out to you, it's not to belittle you in any form. And especially as a woman, I really do feel like we kind of approach the situation differently. You should be proud to have someone like that. You know, you don't have this guy with a big ego just saying, oh, yeah, you, you fucking suck at shooting. Like, just come back tomorrow and good luck. You know, you have someone who's really trying to sit down and work with you on things. Just putting the pride aside, really. I, and I still deal with it today, but usually the people that, that don't want it, they never end up getting better and sucks to be them. That's all I can say. <laughs> one of my proudest accomplishments as a coach was actually teaching this one guy from EOD. And you know, you expect to come in with these EOD guys and they're already experts themselves, but he needed a little extra instruction. And we really worked on it. It was mainly just um, his breath. And when we were on like the rifle ranges together, he could never seem to get down into the sitting position because he couldn't, like he was not flexible at all. So we worked on it. We stayed snapped in five days a week, every single day at the range, worked really hard with him and ended up getting him expert for the first time. And he actually ended up giving me his EOD badge. And I love that thing like that. I, it's just like a kid in a candy store when range coaches get those candies. So when I have that on the back of my pith cover now, I always have people ask me stories about him. And it's always a joy to bring up how how hard I really worked on helping him out. And later on, when I actually went to EAS and get out, he was in the holding platoon with me and he immediately recognized me, which was really, really awesome. Like he just came up to me and he was like, Hey, you're my coach, right? Coach Skinner. And I was like, don't do that. Don't do that. Like I felt so famous, <laughs> you know, this, this, this awesome person with a highly decorated, so much chest candy has gone through so much, but I'm the person you remember. That's awesome. You know? So it's just, it's such a great interaction and I hope he's doing well if he's out there. So when it came down to get my black belt as a Lance Corporal, we went through a lot of hazing. Like, you know how they say you have to have 40 hours of PT alongside with grappling and body sparring and, and obviously learning the different techniques. Notice how I didn't say moves. I always say techniques because they really, really got that in your head. We would do a lot of it. I, I started with a food service instructor, and he got me my gray belt. And then from there, I moved up to someone from a different section. They got me my green belt. But it was a lot of getting drugged through the mud, my flak, everything covered. Like, I did not know how I was going to turn it in by the time that I had to PCS <laughs> because of how wrecked it was. We would go home, like, my hair would be all types of messed up. We'd have, like, the rubber pieces all over the place. Like, we got fucked up every single day for those belts. For whatever reason, each course just kind of seemed to happen one after the next for me. And I took advantage of it because I was 19, maybe 20 years old, and I wasn't broken. <laughs> you know, so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in really good shape right now. So I'm just going to keep my head down and stick through it. And I really did. And in my black belt course, my instructor made us fight everybody and then be fought after everyone. So we had to get hip tossed by everybody and then we had to hip toss everyone. So even if a guy was 250 pounds, way bigger than me, I still had to manage to hip toss him, which was pretty difficult. 
And when it came time to test out uh, some of our techniques and we had to do the guillotine from the standing to the laying position, I had to get charged by this one guy who I, I love him. I had duty with him multiple times. Great guy. We used to party at all the balls together. <laughs> but uh, when I saw him charging at me, oh man, I was so terrified. I already knew what I was in for. So I remember taking his head, putting it under my arm, and then he lifted me so far off the ground. And then when I came down, it was just like there was no air left in my body. But he had a pretty thick neck, so it was really easy to actually tap him out. <laughs> and I ended up doing it really well. So I think having a really skilled instructor was really, really important. Just teaching you how to snap into those positions, because no matter the size of the Marine, I feel like you can still get it done as long as you're really tactical with it. Not what I expected, and I definitely earned it. It wasn't one of those things where you have to go in and just learn the techniques and go home. No, we were running around the bases, getting our flax dirty with mud and getting uh, the tires, like all like the shredded tires from the McMap pits all over ourselves. Like we were just messes, honestly. We look like recruits. So I was going to get my green belt in McMap, and I remember we had to grapple with just any one of our choosing. And I ended up choosing this one staff sergeant who was in like the air wing. And he was probably one of the most cockiest guys that you could ever meet. Just big ego, thought he was hot shit. And I knew that he was really terrible with like arm bars, especially like he would always go in for like chokehold. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to get him with an arm bar. And I remember just kind of watching him and like not really looking at like what limb I was going to grab. And then I reached for his arm and I pulled him down and I got him into a, a pretty solid arm bar. He wouldn't tap for me. And he almost passed out, like, in the midst of us fighting. And I just remember being like, by the end of it, I was like, you let your ego and your pride get in between all of that. Just so, you, I don't know, you, you wouldn't tap for a woman. And then later on, we continued to fight. Like, we would continue to do grappling. And it was kind of like an open pit. And everyone could kind of come in and pick somebody. And, of course, he comes straight for me. And he's putting me down. And, oh, man, he was playing dirty, too. Like, kind of like rubbing his like elbows across my face and stuff, just like messing me completely up. Like, and I, I didn't really get the point of that. <laughs> I was just like, you're just so mad because of earlier. I did end up tapping. I did end up tapping that time, but it was, you know, I didn't have a problem tapping because he, he earned it. He really did. But we definitely got down and dirty in those kind of situations. And it's just interesting to see what kind of vendettas that we take uh, for one another. So probably one of my favorite memories in Japan was when I, I went to corporal's course and we were, we had already graduated. We had already been through all the shit and we were on to our mess night. And this was like, this is probably one of the funniest nights I've ever had. Like, of course, there's many nights in Japan where I'm getting belligerently drunk and like passing out in the streets, but this was different. Okay. <laughs> I remember I was sitting with my platoon and we're all drinking and they, you know, the president of the mess has all these rules for, getting up and leaving your table. Otherwise, you're going to have to drink from the grog. And there was no way I was going to do that because our grog was like the concoction that they had made for it was so disgusting. And um, I probably have like a bladder of like a, a hummingbird <laughs> from what my friends tell me. But at one point, I just had to go to the bathroom so bad. And there was no way you could stand up from that table. So I decided, being the stealthy Marine that I am, to low crawl from my table, not telling my platoon where I'm going because I just had to go and low crawl across 
the and like the entire mess night and go to the bathroom. Now this required me to have to low crawl and go like underneath the table where everyone was sitting, the president of the mess, the vice president, the guest of honor. And so I'm low crawling literally over their feet, <laughs> trying to go as quietly as possible. And then I'm like scaling the walls to get to the bathroom. And it was like the most nerve wracking moment in my life because I'm super drunk, everyone's super drunk, and I'm just praying to God that they don't catch me so I don't have to take a drink from that disgusting grog. So I finally make it, I get to the bathroom. Honestly, I we were in our dress blue, so I didn't even have time to get right. I probably peed on myself a little bit. Like, it was just terrifying. And then it comes time to leave, and I'm just, like, watching the walls and, like, looking over my shoulder. And I, I think I was very obvious, but apparently nobody else spotted me. So it was either they were very messed up or I was just you know, on my P's and Q's with myself. And I ended up crawling back over their feet. And then I heard my friends asking about me, hey, like, where's Skinner? Where's Skinner? I haven't seen her in so long. And then I just popped right back up into the seat. <laughs> like nothing ever happened because I did not want anyone to snitch. I was not taking a drink from it. So I successfully managed to make, you know, my little storm on the beach or whatever <laughs> to the bathroom and back without getting caught. So I... Yeah, I just love mess night. That was like one of the best, best times in Corporal's Chorus or in Japan in general. I was stationed in Japan for over three years. So I was there from July 2017 to about August 2020. So I was there during the pandemic. It changed the game on everything because when I had originally got there and I had those great mentors who told me, hey, travel when you get this off time, do these things. And, and which I did, me and my friends, we, we went to multiple countries together, taking leave together. It, it was amazing in the first like two, maybe two and a half years that I was there. We got to go to the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, and the flights were so cheap going from Japan just over. And, and most of the time they were like one-way flights, you know, or like no-stop flights. But once the pandemic hit, really wrecked the experience. And as a food service, it was really hard for us because we had to go from just serving the chow halls to now serving everyone in quarantine and taking all those meals, packaging up all those meals and taking them out to the Marines that would get quarantined for weeks. We pretty much kissed all of our liberty goodbye after a certain point. And it sucked because they didn't let us go home for anything. I had personal emergencies, you know, at home. I had a, a family member pass away and I couldn't go home and see her because they they didn't allow us that chance because they were so nervous about the pandemic and no one had known how to deal with it. And being that close to where the outbreak had started, it made things worse. I think our leadership just failed in that sense because they kept us hostage for a long time. Um, it, it was honestly a luxury to go out and just get McDonald's off base or go get some ramen off base every once in a while after a certain point. So when August had finally come up, I was so, I was excited to get out. I was ready. And then, you know, you come back and it's a, we're in a pandemic situation and that nothing had changed. I don't know what I was expecting when I got home. You know, everything was still shut down. So most of the time when I would go traveling from Japan to these other countries, I'd always come with a big group of friends, usually a big group of Marines. And when I went to Thailand, uh, I went with like a girl. It was like a girl's trip and it was really cool. And we wanted to see kind of 
I guess, like the risque parts of Thailand. So the first stop that we made was, of course, Bangkok. <laughs> and we went there and like we went through, I guess, the red light district. And we went to like the lady boy bars and stuff. And like the other, like, I guess, strip clubs, if you would call them strip clubs. But it really wasn't what you'd expect. It was just a bunch of girls just kind of like whining back and forth and just standing up on a table waiting to get chosen to like go out for these, you know, old greasy men. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this is not what I expected at all. And then seeing these lady boys with like better tits than I had, I was like, okay, hold on, hold on, what, back it up. What's going on over here? Like this culture, it was a culture shock for sure. And, uh, but you know, and we would go out in the streets and get super drunk and they would have like bugs for sale to eat and stuff. And like, I got a roasted scorpion on a stick. It tasted like peanuts. It was actually pretty good. <laughs> but you, you would have never thought, you know, being in that situation, like what was going on. But, you know, we just, we had fun. And from there, we, we flew down to Phuket in Thailand. And like we went to the Fifi Islands and got to go island hopping. And we got to go into the jungles and have experiences with like elephants and elephant sanctuaries. And that was so cool. One of the best times in my life was actually just uh, feeding elephants, bathing with them, giving them mud baths and stuff. So we, we were kind of wholesome too at some points, but you know, you got to fit in kind of that nitty gritty where you can. <laughs> but when I went to the Philippines, I witnessed a lot of like strippers in the Philippines. We would go to clubs, any club, and there would always be a dancer there. And we'd buy them every single time because it was kind of fun. And there was this one trick that this this one club had where the dancer would get out. She'd like spread her legs on top of a table. She'd put a ping pong ball inside her pussy and then she'd like shoot it out at you. And then she'd let you keep the ping pong ball afterwards. And then there was another one where she would like put it inside her pussy and she'd, she'd ask you what your name was. And then she'd like put a marker in there and then she'd like write your name on a piece of paper with her, her cooter. And then you got to keep that too. <laughs> And like we would get up on the poles and start spinning around, my friends and I, boys, girls, didn't matter. And I remember that night we had ended up hanging out with some locals. And I guess they got too excited with me and my friends and they, they followed us back to our Airbnb on the little tuk-tuks, you know, those little like bikes and stuff. They were just jumping on. We were jumping on tuk-tuks ahead of them. And it was like mission impossible trying to get back to the Airbnb. And by the time we had gotten back, we had to have like I guess like some of the guys of the group tell them to go away. <laughs> so yeah, we got followed in the Philippines. We were, we were having a, a ball out there. And not only that, we also went um, in another part of the Philippines. Like we would do island hopping often and we got to go swim with whale sharks. And that was crazy. Like jumping into the water and being in the water in the same vicinity as this giant animal. It's like as big as a bus. And like when their tails would like come close to you, you had to move out of the way because that I don't know how many pounds of pressure that is like like flipping in your face. So that was crazy. Um, and after like the we would swim with the whale sharks, we'd go to eat with like the locals and have like a nice lunch with them. And then down on the street, they'd be having like cockfights. So they literally tie razors to the ends of these these like roosters. And then the, the roosters would just fight each other to the death. And then people would just kind of gather up around the streets and just start throwing money in and they'd make bets and like gamble with their which rooster was going to win. And it was just a normal thing. 
And, you know, me and my friends are up here trying to eat our rice and just wind down from being in the water with these giant animals, you know, it's just like, it was just so chaotic, you know, going from a small town in America to this, you know. In the military, they always give you a free surgery, right? Everyone's allotted a free surgery. While I was in, I was kind of going over the options because I was like, you know what? If I can get the government to pay for me, I'm going to get something done. And I had like really big tonsils. I would always snore, super loud snore. So I, I went in, got checked, and they told me, okay, we can approve you for a tonsillectomy. You can go get it done, but we don't have the means to take care of you on base. So we're going to actually have to send you up to Tokyo to get your tonsils taken out. And I was like, hey, free trip to Tokyo, you know? I got to take my roommate. Her and I got to get, like, the basic housing allowance out there. Life was good, right? And so we're partying up in Tokyo every night, you know, missing the trains on the way home, having to walk super far to, like, 5 in the morning, super drunk. And then the day comes to where I have to get my surgery, which I, which I don't recommend anyone drink that close to surgery. <laughs> Following the surgery, Navy Medical actually ended up issuing me 70 Percocet 10s. I understand like um, hydrocodone or whatever the other forms are, but 70 Percocets, I don't know why they thought that was mandatory for me to have. So when I was recovering in Japan, up in Tokyo, not on a base or anything, I was just popping Percs left and right because I didn't understand. It felt really good to just let go and not really care about anything for long periods of time. On day three of recovery, I had ended up taking so many perks that I was like overdosing. Like I couldn't, my pupils were like pinpoints. I couldn't stand up straight. I had to have my roommate get in a Japanese cab with me, a taxi, and just take me on a base. And by the time we got to the base, I was throwing up everywhere. I couldn't even open my jaw because my tonsils were like they, you know how they have to like burn them? They're, they're like, my, I couldn't even open my jaw fully. And they literally had to take Zofran, which is a pill that gets you to stop being not nauseous. And they had to shove it down my throat. Like I had a, a lady's full fist in my mouth to get me to stop throwing up. They allowed me to keep the Percocets. And I, I don't know what happened. I just, I got addicted to them. I, I couldn't get off of them. And six weeks had gone by and that's more than ample enough time to recover from those things. And I was already back on base and they wanted to do a piss test for us. And I, I told my doctor, I, I can't do it. There is no way I'm going to be able to pass it because I have Percocets in my veins. I take them every single day. I started taking them to go to work. I started taking them to go get food after work. In the span of like six or seven weeks, I had almost cleared that entire bottle. I had to have an intervention with the doctor and he made me take in the bottle and, and flush the Percocets down the toilet right in front of me and that hurt so bad. And I, I realized that sometimes Navy Medical doesn't know what they're doing. Like, I don't understand the purpose of giving a service member that amount of Percocets. And I, I spiraled for, for a long time after that. And I would, you know, replace it with drinking every single weekend and getting blacked out every single weekend with my friends because I really just miss the feeling of not caring. To this day, I know, I know myself and I know that I can never go back because the moment that I, I do that again, it's, it's, it's definitely going to be a full-blown addiction like it was in the Marines. I had really good friends on base that would take me out and tell me like, hey, like, we got to get you back to doing the things that you enjoy. I like, I had a YouTube channel at the time and I wasn't even making YouTube channel or YouTube videos anymore. And 
really, I feel like if I didn't have them, I, things could have gotten really, really bad because I was so far away from home and, um, I had just experienced, you know, uh, the death of a family member and the pandemic had hit and it, it was, it was really up to my friends to kind of pull me out of that dark space. So they did. And over time, we just, we just got through it together, really just spending a lot of time with them. Su suicide amongst the active duty community isn't something that people talk about. And just from my boot camp platoon alone, I, I've encountered two people who have taken their lives. Miriam Liu, she took her life um, in the schoolhouse, from our understanding. And Vassas, she took her life when I was stationed in Iwakuni. I feel really terrible because I remember seeing her maybe a week before she took her life, and I was cooking on the grill, and I was actually making her her omelet, and she uh, got egg whites. It's so silly. She always got egg white omelets with me, and I was just asking her how she was doing, and she just stared and didn't quite say anything, and I didn't know how to approach it because I was, you know, we're always going through things on our own, and sometimes we get so selfish, and we just don't think about others in those moments. Fast forward a week later, it turns out she took her life in her, in her barracks, and her, her roommate had walked in on her, and our entire platoon and series from boot camp was just, like, heartbroken from it. I couldn't believe it. I, even though I understand that she, she wasn't being very open when I was kind of talking to her and chatting with her and trying to make her eggs and stuff that morning, I didn't know it was to that point. And I think that even if we're in active duty, even if we're living in barracks with other Marines, other service members, we can still put ourselves in some type of isolation. And we got to get out of our heads and stop thinking about ourselves at that time, you know, at those times, because you never know who, what's going on with somebody else. If I could have gone back and done it differently, I would have. I, I would have thrown down, you know, my tongs and I would have gave her a big hug and let her know things were going to be okay. It's so hard to, you know... Oh, I just feel so terrible because I had such a great support group and it's like, I wish you had the same thing. Yeah, I, I'm very lucky to have the people that I have in my life. And yeah, even if she did have that support group, it's just, I can't imagine the point that someone gets to, to when they think that there's no other option. Because there's always another option. I knew Vastus in boot camp and I, I knew a little of her when we were in Ubukuni, but... She always took everything on the chin. I have never seen her crack, no matter what. No matter if a drill instructor was yelling at her, like, she was always just, like, the most tough person. It was like she was kind of that rock. She was that foundation if you had ever needed anybody. She was just always there. She, I feel like there's certain people who are really great at talking, and then there's others who are wonderful with listening, and that was Vasas. She was just always someone that if you needed an ear, she was there for you. And I've, I've just, I've never seen her falter. She was just as tough as nails. I miss her a lot. I think about her. I've, I've even got a, a bracelet um, in memoriam of her and uh, my other friend as well. Following three years in Japan, and honestly... Being kind of a stellar Marine, you know, I, I had my secondary MOS and I was on top of my game. I was mentoring other Marines, 
putting them through college. You know, I really felt like I had so much sense of purpose. You know, my buddies were asking me to pin them on to their next rank and stuff. And I was just such a proud person. I was definitely a motivator. And I think it was actually kind of surprising to my command by the time I had ended up choosing to get out. But I, I felt like I kind of had a calling to come out and to try a different career path. So when I decided to get out and I, I went from being overseas and, and being that NCO, that, you know, right-hand man to a regular degular <laughs> civilian living with her parents again, there was a period of time when I felt like nothing. This was during the pandemic. So you had more than ample enough time to just sit around and think about how you feel because <laughs> there's nothing else to do. And sometimes sitting alone with those thoughts and being like, okay, I have to take a step back. I am no longer this NCO anymore. I, I'm, I'm on ground zero in, in a sense again. What am I going to do to fulfill my life again? That was really hard. That was the question that took me a long time to answer. And the first year of getting out, I, I didn't know how to answer it. I, but I did lean on, on my parents and on my brother because my brother was also in North Carolina. So it was so good to be able to be home and see him again. Throughout time, I realized that you can kind of create whatever reality that you, you want. And I started school. I started doing the things that I loved, which is studying film, studying English. But I thought, you know, I'm not really doing enough right now and with the leadership skills that I have. So I decided once I got accepted to LMU to become the president of the veterans program there. And now bringing a community together again just feels so good. And honestly, once I graduate this upcoming spring, I, I'd like to continue that in whatever way I can using the skills that I've learned with college, using the skills that I've learned from the Marines, I'd like to go forward and, and help others again. So at our veterans program, what we do is we just try to build community and kind of give the veterans a place to come. So we're in a student affairs building, and this is a place where they can come in and get office hours and just hang out with all the veterans and just be in a space where they don't have to worry about um, trying to fit in with the other students who don't share that similar background with them. And we organize tons of events, like we have organized happy hour together and we'll go and grab free drinks. And then we've gone to the Irreverent Warrior hikes together and we have a veterans ball coming up soon. So we're all gonna get dressed up really nicely and we're gonna award the veterans with stoles, which just kind of talk about like, they're, they're like the shawls that you wear at graduation and they have their their service on there. So we're trying to provide a really safe space for veterans to come to and, and, and to create these events for everyone. For Veterans Appreciation Week at our school, we had a lot of events going on. Uh, we did the happy hour there. Then we went and did top golf together. And then we ended with a Veterans Appreciation Dinner at the end of the week. And it was really fun. We all got together, had a nice dinner, had our drinks. You don't have to put on a front when you're around your veteran buddies. And I think the community now is the most important thing to me. Uh, I, you know, I make friends far easier in that sense. And I, I do things way more with other veterans. Like I've gone on camping trips with other veterans and things like that. And it's just, it's brought a lot of life and purpose and happiness and joy back into me now. We have 
two very different generations of veterans. We have the older veterans and then we have the GWAT veterans and we cannot seem to connect with each other. There's so much angst going on and people get online and they seem to kind of target groups of people who didn't serve in the infantry or are women. And a lot of the time it kind of creates this really, really negative environment. It makes people scared to go out and to talk about their stories because they're kind of afraid of how they're going to be perceived by the, the older veterans. But I don't think it has anything to do with what you did while you were in your service. I think it has to do with how they're feeling about themselves. You know, a lot of the time we get online and we get behind the, the keyboard and we start talking about people because we're hurting ourselves. I feel like it's important not to continue to bash each other even if they do kind of say those negative things, but to kind of flip it around and look in the mirror and say, what am, what am I doing? You know, am I, am I the one who's sad? Am I the one who's upset? Why am I projecting this onto someone else who also willingly decided to serve their country and to join for similar reasons as I did? I think it's really important that we take care of everybody, even those people, the naysayers in the comments too. You know, you don't need to shit talk me because of my experience you know you're still my brother you're still my sister if we can kind of solve that problem the, the veteran community can become much stronger and maybe we can stop experiencing not that we can cut it out completely but maybe this can stop the suicidal ideations maybe this can harbor a safer environment for people to come out and talk about their stories because at the end of the day i feel like we're we're only as strong as our weakest link so it's really important that we lift each other up. Because at the end of the day, when we come out of the service and we go to get jobs in civilian sectors, they're looking up to us as veterans. But how can they look up to us, these people who have more leadership skills, have more experience, have the grit and the integrity, if we can't even be nice to each other? If we can't support each other, then they're just going to look at us and say, well, they're falling apart. So what truly are the veterans bringing to us. It's really about stopping the division here in between, you know, what you contributed to the service and understanding that we all earn this title, right? And we all came in here to have each other's backs at the end of the day. And honestly, if something were ever happening to anybody and I was ever out in a place where I could go and protect them, I would. I do expect the same in return. You don't warrant respect based on what you've done. I think it's just there because you made that sacrifice to join. Hey, look, I just want to tell y'all right now, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're a woman, if you're a man, if you were food service, I want you to go out there every single day and I want you to cook those fucking eggs as best as you can. I want you to understand that your service matters. It doesn't matter about what anybody else has to say. You, yourself, are a badass motherfucker. So go out there, make the fucking change in your community and at whatever level and capacity that you can, okay? Remember that nothing changes if nothing changes. And that's it.